painting. It's split in half. Right in the middle, there's the top and there's the bottom of the painting. At the top part of the painting is this glorious picture of the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is shining bright and there is right lightning coming from him and the, and the disciples are falling before his feet. That's the top half of the painting. But it's almost as if on top of that mountain, the bottom half of the painting is almost feels underground. And there's people there. And there's darkness surrounding the people. And there is, um, there is a young boy and naked from the waist down looking up and there are people trying to rescue him and there's darkness and there is misery and there's this stark contrast in Raphael's last painting between the majesty on the mount and the misery down in the valley. And I want us to consider that incredible contrast this morning. I want us to consider, as we've been in the transfiguration, the majesty of the God-man and to remember our last passage of his glory on the mount and to remember that he, uh, the lightning burst forth from his face and he was actually speaking to Moses and to Elijah who also appeared in glory and they were speaking about the departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And then we are to remember... Um, Peter, and he begins to open up his mouth, and, and, and then we are to remember the Shekinah glory cloud that still shone bright out of the cloud that settled down upon them. And then we are to remember that when the cloud lifted, Jesus was found alone, and a voice boomed out of heaven. And he said this, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Can you imagine with respect to Christ's humanity just how encouraging it would be to hear the voice of God from that mountain after what he realizes that he will have to do to go to the cross, to obtain the departure, the exodus of his people out of the bondage of sin. And they get a, a little foretaste on that Mount of Transfiguration of the coming kingdom and the fulfillment of, all, of it all as the Christ of God, one like of Son of Man would come in glory and win in history at the end. But this is the amazing aspect of this passage this morning. Jesus must come down from the mountain. And that's what he does. And that brings us to our passage today. Take your Bibles. Bobby read it, take your Bibles and turn back there to Luke chapter 9. And our text this morning will be verses 37 through 45. And as you're turning there to Luke chapter 9, I want you to be thinking, remember the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration. And I want you to feel the painting come alive. I want you to feel the contrast that is present from the majesty of the mountain to the misery the next day as we read. Luke chapter 9, 
verse 37. And Luke means to connect these two passages, the Mount of Transfiguration, with the event that happens the next day. Because look at verse 37 of Luke chapter 9, on the next day. There's a connection. It happened right after that mount. Oh, and if we're not sure he means to connect it, when they had come down from the mountain, the next phrase, he means for us to read these two passages together. Verse 37, on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Verse 38, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. I want you to hear me. Let these words sink into your ears. For, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about, that, about this statement. The glorious Son of Man, the next day, descends into the grime of sin and the presence of the darkness. And he did that in order to save us. What a contrast between the majesty on the mount and the next day of ministry among those locked in absolute misery. From the majesty on the mountain to the misery in the valley. That's what Luke is doing in this passage. And we're going to look at the interplay between majesty and misery in this passage under three headings. Number one, let's first look from verses 37 through 41 
Let's look at the misery. First, let's look at the misery. And we're going to look at the misery from three aspects of three people. Number one, let's look at the misery of a father. In verse 38, we read, And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And so they're up all night. They come down off the mount, and they arrive, and there's crowds waiting for them, and they pile around him and press in against him. And this father is shouting and begging, and the word is it's repetitive. He's repeatedly saying this, begging Christ to look, and that word for look is used in other places of have compassion, look with compassion. Please stop for me. I know there's people around. Stop for me and help me. I'm desperate. My, my only boy is being thrashed by a demon. No one can help him. I've heard you, you can help. He's begging for help from Jesus. And I think that's important for us to see. I, because I think that's you. I think that's me. I think that's us. I think that's us every day of our lives. I really do. You finally maybe figured out that you can't figure it out. You finally maybe come to the end of your resources and recognize that you don't have all the answers, that you need help, you're on a great deal of stress, you're not sure what to do. But I will tell you that the Son of Man isn't just up on the mountain. He's come down, and He's come down into our misery, and He meets us right there. And He hears the cries of a father. He hears our cries, and he responds to them. He's humble and gentle of heart. He doesn't respond to those who are in misery and in the muck of sin and death and Satan and can't even see it or think they can work their way up to the mount of glory and be in heaven by their own effort. He doesn't respond to that, to self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. But the father is miserable, and he says, please look at my son. Jesus, help me. I don't know if any of us have ever been there. I'd have, there's nothing that's more miserable than for a parent to effectively have lost a child, to not be able to help their child. And so notice first the misery of this father, helpless pleading, begging, the text says, for help from Jesus. Why was he so miserable? Well, let's find out as we look secondly at the misery of a boy. Verse 39, and a spirit seizes him. He's explaining to Jesus what's happening. A spirit, a demonic spirit, seizes this boy, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. Now, I want you to see, look at the mountaintop, 
I want you to see the misery of this father, but notice the misery of this boy. He's less than 12 years of age. He's a young boy, more than likely. It's heartbreaking, especially when you compare the parallel passages and get the full picture of the misery of this boy. I would imagine this is your child, your only child. The boy is seized by a demonic spirit, and when the demon seizes him, he, and this is right out of, this is a horror, followed by horrific screams. And when the seizing happened and the screams, this boy is thrown down to the ground and slammed to the ground. And when he gets to the ground, he seizes. And he's seizing. He's stiff like a board. And he's in a full seizure to the point where he's foaming at the mouth as he convulses on the ground. And the other passages say he's gnashing his teeth and he's become rigid. And the translation of the Greek in verse 39 about the misery of this boy is that that's what happens when the demon enters him. But what about when it leaves him? It's worse. He doesn't just seize the Greek text and it's a, it shatters him. It's a great translation in the New American Standard for our English. It mauls him. Ever been mauled by a bear? Uh, you wouldn't be telling me about it. This good translation, the demon on the way out mauls this young boy. And we find in parallel passages that he's been thrown into the fire by the demon. He's been thrown into the water by the demon. He's covered with scars and all of that physical trauma superimposed on this has made him deaf and made him dumb. This is happening to a boy the day after the Mount of Transfiguration. Such a miserable existence when young children even in our world. We live in a world where young children suffer like this. This is the misery. How disgusting, how awful, how sad, how heartbreaking for this father. The misery of a, of a father, the misery of a boy, which explains, thirdly, the misery of the Christ. The misery of the Christ. Verse 40. Now pay attention very carefully. This is going to make sense of this verse. Verse 40. The father speaking in verse 40. I begged, again, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Verse 41. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Bring him to me. I don't even need to preach it. You got it. Can you feel the misery of the Christ? Christ. 
people who are maybe not reading carefully wonder, is Jesus sinning here? Well, obviously, we know the good theology. He never sinned in thought, word, or motivation. He turned tables over in the temple. His anger was righteous. Jesus is not sinfully, but he is worked up in his spirit here. You're reading it right. In respect to his humanity, the misery of the Christ. So, Jesus comes down from the mountaintop experience of the transfiguration, having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And we find out that the disciples are not able to cast out this demon. And we know in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, that Jesus had sent the 12 disciples out, and they were very successful, and, the, and Christ had given them power. And so they're, they've, they've casted the demons out in the beginning of Luke chapter 9, and now three, Peter, James, and John, are up on the mountain the poor nine leftovers are left in the valley ministering among the people in the darkness. And they've already, they've already decided, as parallel passage have, have make, make us aware of, that they've decided that uh, we're pretty good at this. And we can do this just fine. And so they already have abandoned faith in the power of Christ out of sight, out of mind for one night. They've and they've abandoned prayer and dependence of God in these situations. And the other parallel passages say it was the unbelief of his disciples. Why could we not cast it out, the parallel passage say? And Jesus says, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind comes out by nothing, by prayer and faith. Fasting, so they could not cast it out because of unbelief, and they didn't have the belief because they were dependent upon themselves and they were prayerless. They felt that they've done it before, we can do it again, and we can depend on our own strength to do it. And so, you've got the unbelief of the disciples and their inability. You've got Jesus coming down from the mountain, and he comes down. To a, to a crowd flocking in with superficial interest and curiosity in Jesus because they can get a handout because he just fed the 5,000 and, and they are interested in him because of that. And then you've got the, the Pharisees and the scribes who have already rejected Jesus Christ at this point in his ministry and they rejected him because of jealousy. And then you've got a little boy, and you've got the demons that he will go to destroy at the cross of Calvary, running amok upon this earth, having their will with, this, with a little boy and thrashing him. And a father who has one son whose son is getting thrashed, and he's desperate, and his family is being torn apart. And Jesus says, and he's like the new Moses who is up 
with God on the mountain and comes down to the golden calf and now the better Moses comes down from the majesty and it's not reflected glory now. It's real intrinsic glory and he comes down into the sin and to Satan and to the muck and misery of this world. He comes down and his head is pushed into it in this passage. The misery of the Christ. And so, who is Jesus speaking to in verse 41? And is he sinning? Do you get it? And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Who is he speaking to? I'll tell you who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to the Father. He's speaking to the leaders. He's speaking to everyone. He's speaking to the demon horde. He's speaking to the entire nation of Israel. You adulterous and sinful generation, Mark chapter 8. And Jesus is moved within his spirit. Because his disciples have already chosen not to believe and not to pray. In the next passage, they're going to debate who's the greatest. If you're not certain that we're on the right track. The next passage. The scribes are trying to trap him. The Pharisees have rejected him. The crowd is shallow and speculating. Family is ripped apart. This kid is being thrashed. The demons are running amok. The children are suffering. The misery is thick. And Jesus says, How, in respect to his humanity, how long, O oh Lord? How much longer do I have to be with them? Hendrickson. The commentator, quote, he was longing for the end, in quotes, yes. Now, we are still plunged in the valley, in the misery, part of the painting. Do we relate to the father, to the boy, and to Jesus, how long, oh Lord, I need help? you ever find yourself anxious and up all night thinking about your life, about the pressures and the pain, and all you can say is, how long is this going to last? Have you, are you weary of your own struggle with your besetting sin? Sins? Are, are, you, are you weary when you think of the way your mouth has almost destroyed your life and your relationships? Are you weary in thinking about your own greed and the fear of man? Are you, how about the struggle with lust? And how about the diagnosis of cancer? Are you weary with the misery? The broken relationships, the misunderstandings, the the helplessness that you feel with your own children, like this father felt as your child has walked away from the faith? 
Don't we relate to the misery of the curse of sin affecting us and our children and our families, this church, this culture? I mean, how twisted is it? You twisted and perverted generation, Jesus says. That's the word for scoliosis. He looks at that generation, that muck that he's in, and he's saying it's scoliotic. It's twisted. How twisted is it for a, for a Minnesota legislator to approve an actual law that makes it okay to shove a needle through the heart of a baby that's about to come out of the birth canal? How long, O oh Lord? That's the misery of the Christ. That's where we're at. Jesus doesn't understand. Really? He understands. He feels this mystery. And he was plunged from the majesty and the encouragement of the mountain into the misery of his ministry among the masses with the grime and the curse of sin. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? But aren't you glad that that's not the last word of Jesus here? Did you notice that? I'm glad he keeps speaking. That's what I like about Jesus. He doesn't quit. He went all the way for us from majesty into our misery, into our darkness. He went all the way. He went all the way to the scourging and the rejection and the abuse and the nails and the darkness as the hordes of darkness and the hour of darkness were unleashed upon him as the wrath of God was poured out upon him and he hung naked upon the tree. He went all the way into misery from majesty for us. He didn't stop. Elijah said, don't stop. Moses said, don't stop. Accomplish in Jerusalem the departure, the rescue, the exodus of thy people out of the bondage and the misery of sin. You go, Jesus. And then he went, and the next day, he was reminded, oh, yes, I must go. There is no other way. There is no other way. I have seen you. I am here in your misery. My, eye, my ears are turned to your begging, Father. I've seen, my eyes have seen the plight of your son. Bring your son here. And that leads us then from the misery to the majesty, number two in this passage. The majesty. Look at what happens. Verse 42, while he was still approaching, demons don't like to be confronted by the son of man. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. You see it? But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he healed the boy. Very rare to have rebuke and heal in the same context. Why? Because this boy was, this is the lowest of low, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so Jesus 
rebukes and heals physically this boy because he had all kinds of physical abnormalities as well, and he gave him back. He gave him back to his father. He healed the boy. I love the heart of Jesus for families here, for families together here, and he gave him back to his father. There's the mercy of Christ as he is right there with us in the midst of our misery, and it's astounding. This is the last of 13 miracles that Jesus performed performed. So it carries some weight. The last of 13 miracles that he performed before he would begin his journey to Jerusalem to the cross of Calvary. So in this last miracle we get the darkest picture of misery. But we also get the brightest picture of majesty before he would set his face like flint and head to the cross of Calvary. The starkest picture of helplessness and our, the incompetence of man, our need for Jesus, of the father, of the boy, of the crowds, of the leaders, of the disciples, the incompetence and unbelief and inability and helplessness. And we get this picture of demonic Darkness and that misery is contrasted with the power and majesty of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I call this majesty? I thought that was the mount. Look at verse 43. Why do I call this the majesty? And they were all amazed. Okay, this is... This is exegetical. Listen carefully. Catch this. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This word greatness in 43 is a unique word. Only used three times in the New Testament. Hard to translate it. It could be translated great, glorious, awesome, majestic. The Greek word is only used three times. One here. Guess where the other word is used? When Peter... In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, is reflecting on the transfiguration. And Peter says, for we, in verse 2 Peter 1, 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But on that mount, we were, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty on the mount. Same word. It's the same word as he's describing for His majesty uh, in, amongst the people and the misery of the people, showing forth His glory. I think that's intentional. So, yes, we had a sneak preview of the power and glory of the Shekinah glory of the person of Christ, the awesomeness of the glory of His second coming, the hope that we have on that day. But Luke means us to, to realize that the Christ has come down from that majesty into our misery. He's with us there, and he means to show us today his majesty. 
the majesty of his mercy. He means to come near to us here and show himself. And I love this. In the person of Emmanuel, God with us, the Shekinah glory of the God-man settles on us, has come down like a cloud to settle on us. And so we see the majesty of his mercy every day in the midst of our misery. Okay, bring Jeff so your day tomorrow, Monday. Bring Jeff to me. Bring Rick to me. Bring Fatima to me. Bring Jeanette to me. Bring Jody to me. It's amazing. Bring Ron to me. That in the midst of our misery here, recognizing that he is right there with us, that he understands and has entered into our misery. And he says, come, I hear your begging, I see your helplessness, bring him to me. And I'm known to thrash a little bit along the way. How about you? May we see his greatness, his majesty in the valley of our misery. Oh, we are so blind to the daily work of the Christ among us. Do you realize that faith every day of of trusting in Christ and the works that flow from love and the hope that we have that we're safe in Him all the way to the end, those those little faith, hopes, and love, if the Spirit work in us every day, that is the glory of the Christian life. It's not somehow the next week or when we finally do something for him or we finally get there. Yes, it will be glorious, but he means to show us in the valley of our misery his greatness. So, when you see a teenager assaulted by doubts and assaulted by this culture and you see that teenager cling to Christ Questions aren't even answered, but clinging to Christ. Deciding to follow Christ in baptism, though none go with me. When you see that, you're seeing the greatness of God. Or, when you see a young couple struggling in their marriage, but they are coming maybe to another brother or sister, they're confessing their sins to one another, they're getting help, and their heart is, teach me, teach me, teach me. I don't know what I'm doing. And they want to hear from the Word of God through the mouth of someone else sometimes. When you see that heart, and then you see the change, don't minimize that. You're seeing the glory of God. Or, when you see a young married man 
see his own sin and respond to a simple gospel message and follow the Lord in baptism and then long to lead his family and his wife coming to Christ too. When you're seeing that happen in the trenches of this misery, you're seeing the glory of God. Or when you see a little group of believers, 30 or so, in the trenches of the misery in the darkness of Vienna, and you see them cling to Christ, and you see pastors being appointed in the nitty-gritty, and you see a dear brother and sister go there and minister, you're seeing the glory of God. Or when you see... 16 pastors in Sierra Leone understand simply what the Bible says about baptism and decide, I don't care how weird this is. I'm going under the water and coming up again. I'm making the good confession. Oh, it's not simple. You're seeing the glory of God. So may we look for majesty right now in our pain because you know what? Just like then, it's true now, we are not alone. And Jesus said, and lo, I am with you all the day, even to the end of the age. At the end of the age, that's when we'll finally get pulled out of this misery and be seated upon the mountain glory. And we will reign with him. But Jesus knows what it's going to cost. And that leads us to our final point as we, as we end. That leads us number three. And it makes sense. As we consider the misery of the father, of the boy, and of the Christ. And then Jesus displaying the same majesty in the valley through his mercy. We see then his message. Number three, the message. And I think this will make sense now. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Verse 43. So they're all just, whoa, this is incredible. But, 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 while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, Jesus is not impressed. Jesus says, okay, hold on. I know they're loud, but I want you to come here. I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Verse 44, it's so emphatic in the Greek text, I can't go into it. But the English translation kind of captures it. Let these words sink into your ears. Do you feel it? Get it through your, like like we went to say, get it through your thick skull. Let these words sink into your ears. For, that's a weird word to put right there. For this reason. What reason? This stuff that we're seeing in the valley. For this reason. For the Son of Man, and He's certain. You say, wasn't he certain before? Or he was. But he's a man, and he's learning obedience. Oh, (laughs) in respect to his humanity, as he comes from the Mount of Majesty, his head is plunged into the misery. He is certain. Oh, I will go to the cross. Let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. 
Why? Four. The demons are thrashing a young boy, crushing families. The father is miserable. Disciples are full of themselves. They're prayerless. They lack faith. They're going to ask who's the greatest in the next passage. The leaders are full of jealousy and rivalry. They've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The crowds are simply looking for a handout for him to feed the 6,000 this time and provide more for them. No real interest in Jesus. No real interest in forgiveness. A shallow curiosity. And all of these things, Jesus is impacting his human mind in respect to his humanity in the midst of marveling and heals this boy and he says it's so clear to me now as I have moved in God's providence from the mount and the majesty there and been plunged into the misery of mankind I want you all to unplug your ears here in this congregation there is no other way to save us but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no overturning of this misery but the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way, Jesus says, to free those locked in the curse. There's no other way to free people from shallow curiosity in Him. There's no other way to free people from jealousy, to free people from the fear of man and greed. There's no other way to free people from the demonic darkness. There's no other way to free people from the bondage of sin. There's no other way than the the Son of Man sets His face like flint and goes to Jerusalem to the cross of Calvary and accomplishes our redemption and hangs there upon the tree, bearing in his own body our sin and our darkness and defeats our sin and our death and puts a stake in the heart of the demonic force. There's no other way but the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he sets his face in Luke chapter 9 to go to Jerusalem. But when Jesus speaks this message to his disciples, how do they respond to it? And how do we respond to it? Let's look at verse 45. But, lots of those words here, but they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so they would not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. So again, the disciples didn't understand that the Christ must drink the cup before he and they would get the crown. They didn't understand suffering before glory. The text says it was concealed from them. Very interesting. doesn't explain it at all. And I think that that is what you will see when you come to the Bible. There are statements of divine sovereignty and statements of human responsibility. They're afraid to ask. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty will be sandwiched in the same passages right next to each other without mitigation, without explanation, without argument, and without contradiction. And that's another sermon. For here we have, like one theologian said, a combination of both human and divine factors conspiring to prevent them from getting it. And perhaps part of the answer is John 16, verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I don't know, but they're responsible. And so I ask, 
The disciples weren't deaf. They heard Jesus. They didn't understand, so they didn't perceive. Perception is taking that understanding and dropping it down into the heart so that it affects your life. They weren't able to understand and perceive. But you know what's sad about this passage? They were afraid to ask Jesus. They were afraid to ask. I get the shot of lightning glory, and then he's a little direct. But they were afraid to ask. Jesus would have told them. So much to learn here. There's a failure to believe in the disciples. There's a failure to pray. There's a failure to understand and perceive. But I think all of that, sometimes it's difficult. But you know what? Please, brothers and sisters, kids, don't be afraid to ask for help. If you don't understand, ask. Ask your parents, ask your pastor, ask Jesus, ask the Word of God. Because don't make no mistake about it, Pastor Jim is talking about discipleship. This is the heart of discipleship right here in this verse. We could preach 10 sermons on it. We can't today. But one pastor said well about verse 45, quotes, Christians who understand are those who have not been content with going through the motions of Christian discipleship but who have applied themselves to asking and thinking and listening, end quotes. So we're not the 12 disciples. We're not there in this passage. But I have a question this morning for you. Do you understand these things? Suffering before glory. The cross before the crown. Do you understand your need for Jesus? Do you understand why he's the only way to rescue you from your sin? If you don't, don't be afraid to ask questions. Those are the best questions of all. Do you perceive it that is necessary for suffering before glory? Well, my mother-in-law, Naomi, perceives it. The other day, it was a little bit of a, it caught me off guard, but I'll explain it. My mother-in-law, Naomi, you know uh, Jody's mother. She understands this perspective of this passage. The other day, Naomi's close, very close friend died a few weeks ago. She died and she went to be with the Lord. She was a woman who was so kind, loved Christ, had such a gift of encouragement and who had suffered with an illness that had led to her death. But when Naomi heard of her death, Naomi said, and it seemed almost stark, this is exactly what came out of her mouth, I am happy for her. That was it? I am happy for her. Why did she say this? Because by God's grace, her eyes have been opened to understand that there is a misery of the curse of sin upon our bodies. And there's the majesty of her friend knowing Christ and being in the presence of Christ. And by God's grace, it wasn't just understanding, but Naomi has a perception that, that true life, and I'm thankful for Dr. Piper for this observation, true life 
isn't even now in the misery. True life, our true calling, our true purpose begins then on the mount in glory. That, that we're being shown this. That, that this life, as C.S. Lewis said so well, this life is only the cover and the title page of the book. But as C.S. Lewis said, and Nomi, Naomi's friend is now experiencing that the beginning chapter one of, when, when she died, she was beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I am happy for her. Because she perceives the cross before the crown. So many of us are saying, how long, O Lord? And I just want to encourage you this morning that our Lord Jesus went from heaven from majesty of glory. He took upon this stuff and he entered into our misery. But let me tell you, he did go to the cross. He got to Jerusalem. He said, it is finished. He burst forth from the grave. He ascended somewhere in a body. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He poured forth His Spirit. He's made it home. He's back on the mount. He's got there. He came down. He went back. And if you are united to our Lord Jesus Christ by faith, guess what? He is pulling you out of this misery. And He's bringing you home to the majesty of His glory. And he will certainly bring us there. That where he is, we shall be also. This is his glory to do so. And this will be our glory too. This will be our glory too. Let us pray. Father, I am astounded at your word thankful for Luke and his gospel and how he brings these two passages together so that we might see the majesty and the glory of God in the face of Christ and see the glory of the cross of Calvary and how it secures without question our rescue and redemption out of the muck of sin and death into the new heavens and the new earth. And Father, I do pray for my dear brothers and sisters. Pray for my own family. Lord, we are in the valley still. We're thankful that you're there with us. We're thankful that you're working daily to show us your glory even here. And so we pray, and we must pray in faith, not depend on our own strength. Forgive us, Lord, but help us to pray for each other and to encourage each other of these truths daily and all the more as we see the day of His coming approaching. We pray for 
Deb Rains, Lord, as she recovers from surgery. Thankful that it went well. Please be with her and make it to be a quick recovery in this time as she cling to you and grow as she reflects on your goodness. Continue to pray for, for Joe Miller, radiation treatments. You would continue to strengthen his faith and heal him. We'll praise you, Lord, for um, Bobby and Danielle safe, safely coming home and being able to encourage that church. We pray for our church plant in Vienna. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless that church and its leaders and her members and their evangelistic efforts in Vienna. Encourage Bobby and Danielle's heart as their home. Continue to pour out your grace upon the Gass family, especially with health, with the really bad malaria case in their family. Would you heal that child and continue to bless their new move there and their efforts to train pastors for church planting ministry and leaders. So continue to pour out your grace upon those efforts, Lord. I pray for each one here today that we would not let this message of your glory pass us by, but we, we would be meditating upon the truth of this scripture throughout this week, and we would be changed, and we would become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are home in heaven and that you'll get us home because you're alive and you ever live to intercede for us. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you, I pray that they would be like that father and they would have that desperation and hopelessness and inability to do anything about it and they would see that's okay because there is the God-man who is alive and well who is gentle and lowly of heart and says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. They don't need to work for it. They need to trust in the person and work of Jesus. Would you help them to come? May today be the day they see the glory of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.